the time in the summer and in school was incredibly tiring and gruesome. I, I remember like, you know, engineers notoriously don't like to get to work early and wake up early. Uh, they, or at least stereotypically, are more night owls. We would have them constantly come in for 6.30, 7 a.m. meetings uh, throughout the week because at 9 a.m. we had to go to class. Broadcasting from the Wharton School, welcome to Start You, bringing you the stories of campus-founded startups from across the nation. Recently, I had the chance to interview Chris Malaro, founder of Neuroflow, at his office here in Philadelphia. Neuroflow is a mental health software company that, in its own words, is changing the way we see brain health. All right, thanks so much for joining us today, Chris. Uh, if you could just go ahead and maybe just uh, describe to us in your own words what Neuroflow is and what it does. Of course, yeah. thank you for having me today. It's exciting to be on the podcast. Uh, so Neuroflow is a software platform that's HIPAA compliant, web-based. We also have a mobile application that uses objective patient-generated data to track, assess, and engage patients throughout the mental health therapy process. Why that's important is because today the standard of care is largely subjective and there's no way to truly track your progress from session one to five to 12 and so on. Um, so being able to track that, assess that, engage patients both in and outside of the clinic um, leads to better outcomes, higher motivation, higher engagement, and uh, overall better system. Interesting, so, so maybe um, how exactly does it work? Like, can you describe a little bit more in detail in terms of is it um, like an app where you kind of like log um, emotional responses, or is it a wearable where you, you kind of measure um, different biometrics, or how do you actually gain that insight? Yeah, that's a great question. So I would describe the platform more as a behavioral health suite of tools. So um, for a therapist that's doing cognitive behavioral therapy, they might assign uh, little homework assignments to do at home or journaling exercises. They might have you fill out questionnaires. Uh, you can do that all in the platform, uh, both in the clinic and back at home. Uh, you'll receive automated email nudges to finish those assignments. We also have an incentives built into the platform so that uh, patients are rewarded points uh, for completing uh, their therapy assignments and then can redeem those points for uh, goods like lift rides and gift cards and stuff like that. Uh, but you also brought up the wearables point, and that's a, a proprietary part of Neuroflow. We're really excited about that, as in a lot of it came out of research that we did at the University of Pennsylvania. And where that comes into play is measuring your body's physiological response to therapy and to stress. The science is when you get stressed and when you're or when you're relaxed or when you're more focused, you your body physiologically uh, manifests that. So your heart rate changes, you sweat more, your, even your brain waves change. Um, and so we're able to measure that, measure that very precisely and objectively quantify on a easy to use scale how stressed you are, how relaxed you are, and so forth. We, uh, we don't make the wearables, we're not a wearable company. We are partners with 
multiple different wearables out there, chest bands for heart rate, wrist monitors for heart rate, um, even EEG headsets, so they're these cool Bluetooth things that we then gather the data, put them through our machine learning engine and AI engine to analyze that data in real time. And just like you would have a thermometer or a scale that gives you real-time feedback on how much you weigh or your body temperature, we give real-time feedback about your stress levels. And that's meant to be used during a therapy session. If I'm doing mindfulness therapy, I could actually see how actually relaxed am I right now while I'm doing that. And that sort of thing. Gotcha. So you guys, it sounds like you, you basically you make software that can be used either in its own web-based or cloud-based mm-hmm. format yep, by, exactly. by therapists or by other types of physicians. Um, and you also make software that can be um, integrated or, or leveraged by wearable devices that are manufactured by um, other companies and in turn used by those, those same doctors? So kind of, not, not exactly. So your first statement was right. It is a web-based, cloud-based, HIPAA-compliant platform that providers can log into. Patients can also log into it. So we have a patient-facing dashboard that they could access from home. They could log into it and really take ownership and track their mental health throughout the therapy process. Part of that is the software is compatible with wearable devices. So wearables emit data, right? Um, If I have the EEG headset on, that's emitting EEG. It's collecting EEG data from my head, and then it's emitting that in uh, wireless or Bluetooth form. And uh, those come in API packets. Our software is compatible with that API, so we grab the data and put it into our platform. So it's, uh, as opposed to vice versa, where the wearable companies use our platform, our platform uses the wearable companies. Does that make sense? Yes, that makes more sense. And you're selling this to doctors, presumably. Yes, so our primary target right now are uh, clinicians, uh, every, you know, anyone down to the private sole proprietor, private psychologist, mm-hmm. all the way up to larger hospital systems like the VA and, you know, those sort of things. Gotcha, awesome. That's a really cool um, product. How did you come up with that idea? Thank you. Uh, it, <laughs> I'm not a psychologist by trade. Uh, <laughs> I am not a neuroscientist. In fact, uh, we have those folks on the team. I come to work every day. I kind of feel, uh, you know, unqualified and stupid every day. Uh, but I, uh, before starting at business school, which is where this idea was founded and we, you know, began the company, I served in the Army for six years. I went to West Point. Uh, for undergrad, got my engineering degree there, served for six years in the Army. I was a captain when I got out. Uh, and in that role, I, you know, uh, soldiers, friends that are affected, <clears throat> excuse me, affected by PTSD or anxiety and depression. And so it was a personal connection to me. I knew that the mental health therapy system, though the professionals in it work really hard and frankly try to do the impossible some days with getting inside your head and helping you get through these issues, uh, the system, though, was suboptimal. I think the numbers speak for themselves. 52 million Americans a year struggle with anxiety or PTSD. It's not just a veteran issue, of course. Um, 70% of patients that drop out of treatment early do so before their third session. That would be akin to you stopping to take your antibiotics early, and obviously the, the outcome there is not going to be a good one. 
the um, soldier suicide, 20 soldiers a day on average commit suicide. But you bring it back to the civilian world, Penn has had, I think it's 14 suicides in the last four years. It's insane, it's horrible, and it, it's tragic. And that process needs to be fixed. In the Army, I was very impact-oriented. I wanted to have a positive influence. And so when I transitioned out of the Army and went to the Wharton School for my MBA, I wanted to have that same impact in business. I didn't know at the time that it was going to be about mental health, mm -hmm. but I met my co-founder, Adam Pardis, and uh, he was in the bioengineering PhD program, working with a lot of these kind of data sets, brain waves, and so forth. And you know, we combined our skills, experiences, and, um, and expertise together to be able to, to make NeuroFlow. Okay, so, so you came into Wharton, um, with that sort of mission in mind, or with that knowledge in mind and, and a desire to solve it, but did you did you have an intent to start your own business? Did did you know that you wanted to do that? So I would even take a step back. I didn't come to Wharton with starting a mental health company in mind. Okay. I, like I said, I'm not a psychologist by trade. I I, um, I I have people on the team that are qualified for that, but I'm more of the business strategy. Uh, you know, personally, it affected me, so I have that drive. I came to Wharton wanting to be impact-oriented with something. And to me, that, that did mean starting your own business, or at least innovating in some form or fashion. When I was in the Army, I started my own nonprofit, so I, have some, I had some sort of entrepreneurial experience. That nonprofit raised hundreds of thousands of dollars. We delivered books around the world to soldiers that were deployed. Um, and so from a kind of an entrepreneurial standpoint, I think that seed has always been in me. Came to Wharton with that same drive on the personal side of things, knowing that mental health affected people that I cared about, knowing mental health was a huge issue, but not necessarily having a plan on how to address that. It's not until I met Adam where, you know, we put our heads together and we said, you know what, we can make an impact in this area that, that you know, frankly, needs the help and disruption. Yeah, yeah. I, I just think it's interesting sometimes to, to speak with founders and learn whether or not they came into to school, into their MBA programs, with an intent to start their own business. Yeah. Or if, you know, something happens throughout their experience there where they, they come up with the idea there. It sounds like you, you weren't set on NeuroFlow coming into Wharton, um, but it sounds like you did have sort of an entrepreneurial ambition and, and interest in, in starting something while you were there. Yeah, I think that's very accurate. Although, I, full disclosure, I, I interned for the summer at McKinsey & Company, the consulting company. Uh, and, you know, that was a great experience. McKinsey says they have a very entrepreneurial attitude, and that was a, a summer that I learned a lot. At. I made a lot of great connections, got to work with very smart people. But when, we, when the ball started rolling with NeuroFlow, we started getting traction, we started getting grant money, um, steam started picking up with the research that we were doing. It was kind of this snowball effect that you weren't going to be able to stop it. And after getting an offer at McKinsey, I, I graciously turned that down to pursue <laughs> NeuroFlow. Uh, but you're exactly right. That kind of impact-oriented entrepreneurial spirit, if you will, always kind of existed within me. Um, and now it's coming to fruition. Yeah, that's awesome. So, 
So let's talk a little bit about uh, your development of Neuroflow in, like, in its inception, in its genesis. So how did you meet your co-founder, Adam? So Adam, you know, he's in the PhD engineering program. I'm in, at Wharton. Those worlds typically don't collide at all. Though there was a, a fellowship that came to Wharton uh, to highlight itself and, I guess, get people to apply. It's called the Insight Fellowship. So it's a graduate-level fellowship that's among all different type of schools, engineers, MDs, law, and business. And I thought it was pretty cool. So it was a technology-focused fellowship. And I applied to that, lucky enough to get accepted. And um, turns out Adam, who I didn't know at the time, did the same thing from the engineering perspective. We go to a few of their meetings. Uh, we're doing the, the fellowship uh, you know, curriculum. And uh, Wharton was hosting a business plan competition. And uh, it had to be something technology and science related. So I... You know, I have an engineering undergrad background, but I'm not a scientist by trade. So I started asking around, and Adam in the Insight Fellowship was very interested in doing something with me in terms of this business plan competition. Uh, and that was how I met Adam, kind of make the joke of, you know, it's getting your co-founders kind of like dating. You, know, <laughs> you, you, like, you lock eyes, you're like, wow, you might be the one. And you, you hang out for a few weeks, you work on your initial business plan, you reassess just like you would in initial dates. But we, um, you know, we really got along in those first few weeks, submitted our business plan, and it was atrocious. It was horrible. I mean, I'm serious. We, we had, I'm trying to think, like probably seven to ten days to get a presentation together for that. Pulled a couple all-nighters, submitted it. I'm pretty sure the judges laughed hysterically when they saw it, but we weren't deterred. In that process, we learned a lot about the market, a lot about the competition, and that there, frankly, wasn't really any solution that addressed what we wanted to address, and it just added fuel to the fire. We said, yeah, whatever, that was one competition. We had two weeks to do it. I think we have something here, and so we, uh, we made the commitment to each other to continue working on this, trying to see... I mean, we were students, so the risk was minimal if it didn't work out. Mm -hmm. And so we tried to, you know, we said, continue working on this, try to grow it, try to get some grant money to fund some research, and we won't stop until either it succeeds or we fall on our face doing it, but hopefully learning a lot in the process. And hopefully, you know, thus far, we've been able to manage not tripping too much. <laughs> yeah, it looks like it. So... At what point in the year was that startup competition then? Was that earlier on? or was That it... was November of 2015. Okay. And then November 2015, a few months rolls by. February to the December, we applied to a few other. I mean, at this point, it was all about trying to get as much free money as possible. Mm -hmm. Investors wouldn't touch us with a 12-foot pole. So it was we could not raise investment money. Um, and obviously, if you can't raise investment money, a bank is not going to even open the door for you. So uh, we couldn't get loans. We couldn't get investment money. We were poor students, so we couldn't self-fund this. Uh, so it was all about trying to drum up interest and promise and get free money. And so we started submitting to a bunch of competitions. And fast forward to February of 2016, we were semi-finalists in this competition called the Tiger Launch. 
and Tiger Lunch, I was uh, Tiger Lunch out of Princeton University, and it was a national thing, and we uh, get invited to go present in New York. I wasn't able to go to that semi-final presentation, but Adam went on our behalf, and he remembers, I mean, it was so funny, he called me the night he got there, and Tiger Launch said, don't worry, we'll put you up in, uh, you get free lodging, we'll pay for the transportation up there, and I think what became abundantly clear was that this present, this competition was meant for really undergrads, uh, and we were both, you know, mid to late 20s grad yeah. students and Adam gets to his quote unquote free lodging and it was a freshman dorm room and it, and it wasn't vacant there were two people that lived there and he got a comfortable uh, sleeping bag on the floor and it was noisy and uh, he just uh, you know I remember with him but he I think reminisces of that well looked around and said this is a uh, this is what startup life is yeah, like. Yeah, that's the startup hustle, yeah. sleeping on freshman dorm floors. No kidding, absolutely. That's awesome. Okay, so the name of the game was was getting money, free money from these, these competitions. Just enough to show traction, get some research behind this, to then maybe hire interns to build a prototype. Remember, everything right now is based on PowerPoint slides mm-hmm. and notebooks. Mm-hmm. So nothing works, right? I mean, it's not even like... We don't even have a vision of how we're going to get it to work, basically. So it's all uh, premised on an idea and a vision of what we and how we can do it. And so we end up actually winning some money, some prizes. We became finalists. Adam did advance to the finals for Tiger Launch. We didn't end up winning there, but we did win $10,000 from the Wharton uh, Venture Fund or Wharton Venture Award. We won $1,000 from the Innovation Fund, and it started to add up. And within the next year, we won a combined $140,000 of free money. Wow. Which was, I mean, we started to get the hang of these competitions <laughs> yeah. and what it takes to, uh, to walk away a winner. And, you know, not only the, the money was a huge piece, but it provided us some great press, too. Yeah. And, uh, you know, able to drum up a lot of interest that way. Yeah, $140,000 in equity-free money is not a bad Totally, thing. no strings attached. That's yeah. awesome. So... So then, you know, you said that you went and summered at McKinsey. So w- before you left your internship, where was Neuroflow? Like, where had y'all gotten to at that point? Uh, so we were, let's see what we were doing. So Adam committed to do it full-time over the summer. He had to by virtue of one of the grants that we won. And so Adam was doing this full-time the whole summer. I moved McKinsey's internship internship up a little bit in the summer so that when I ended the summer I had eight weeks off before the next semester started so that I would rather than taking those eight weeks off I would work on Neuroflow full-time for for that time period of the summer and so where Neuroflow is at basically at the end of the semester we um, brought on our first partner who is a engineer developer uh, who was supposed to start building out our prototype. Mm-hmm. And we, um, so we're starting to build our prototype, and Adam really was focused more on getting the research study that we had to do at Penn underway. And so it was less focused on the business aspect of the, at this time and more focused on getting the research underway, okay. which was Adam's primary responsibility. And that allowed me to you know, be less involved in the, you know, during that summer. Yeah. But when you were at McKinsey, were you still, you know, 
on you know off hours taking late night calls with Adam still plugged into Neuroflow or did you just hit the pause button? No, uh, yeah. So McKinsey was like an eighteen hour workday, and then you know I slept for three hours, and then it, it, all that white space was on the phone with Adam, Skype calls, doing work, weekends. I didn't take off from McKinsey, or I took off from McKinsey, but then I started working on Neuroflow, and we. It was just a. Um, the time in the summer and in school was incredibly tiring and gruesome. I, I remember, like, you know, engineers notoriously don't like to get to work early and wake up early. Uh, they, or at least stereotypically, are more night owls. We would have them constantly come in for 6.30, 7 a.m. meetings uh, throughout the week because at 9 a.m. we had to go to class. So the only time we can get together, all of us, and, you know, come up with, you know, have a meeting and come up with a plan and work on this would be really, really early in the mornings. I remember always walking on campus at 6.30 in the morning, going to this meeting, and it would be dead. No one, no one was there. No one was up yet. We'd walk in the building. The only person in the building was the security guard. And uh, it was kind of surreal, but looking back on it, I mean, those are, those are very fond memories. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I'm curious then, would you say, <clears throat> you know, being at school, being at Wharton, um, Obviously, you had all those those access to um, to those pitch competitions and some some of those grants and mm-hmm. free money, as you called it. Do you consider, you know, your experience starting Neuroflow while in school to have been more of an asset or more of a liability because you know half your time was taken up by schoolwork and mm-hmm. stuff like that? Yeah, I think one point should be clarified is. I don't know the exact breakdown, but there were a good portion of those grants and the the quote-unquote free money that we received that was uh, outside of the school that any Mm -hmm. public person could apply for to or whatnot. Uh, That being said, the school experience afforded me the opportunity to take the risks that I did doing this. Um, I mean, there was always a safety net there. If this didn't work out, you know, you walk away with an MBA and you can get a job or you can go back to McKinsey or you can do something. So there is um, the notion of, you know, needing to put food on the table, at least in at the beginning stages, wasn't there. And, you know, I feel really fortunate about that because without that, I don't think we were able to make the impact we are now in mental health. I mean, we clinicians tell us all the time we're changing the way that they practice for the better we're enhancing the way that they interact with their patients and you know I guess hindsight's 2020 you don't really know what you'd be able to do without what you had but uh, Wharton Wharton's community the office space they provided at no cost all the mentorship advisors the access I mean all of that stuff certainly made it easier. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, I I like to think that if Adam and I somehow met outside of school or we weren't in school, we met somewhere else, we would be able to accomplish this without, you know, that infrastructure. But I guess that's an unfair question because we won't really ever know. What I do know is that the school and Penn has been an incredible resource throughout this entire process. That's awesome to hear. So, okay. 
you finish your internship at McKinsey, uh, you finish early and start going heads down on Neuroflow for the remainder of the summer. Then you come back to school in, in the fall, and and what's what's the status? So Adam's been working on getting the, the research study underway. Yeah, so we had to go get, like, you know, the research, research academia is uh, very good at what they do, but they're, what they're not good at is efficiency. Um, and so we had to get... IRB approval. We had to get their Penn's business department on, uh, behind this and figuring out what the budget was, what they were going to charge us to do. What we were doing was called industry-sponsored research. So it'd be akin to having a, you know, a, a pharma company, billion-dollar budget, come to Penn saying, "We have a new drug. We'd like you to do a trial for us." And then Penn saying, "Great, we'll do that for you. Um, this is the budget it's going to cost you." they treated us the same exact way they would have treated that billion-dollar pharma company. So they didn't, we said we were doing industry-sponsored research. They didn't look at it as, okay, if you're doing industry-sponsored research as a startup, so we're going to have a different process for you as we do industry-sponsored research for everyone else. No, industry-sponsored research was under one blanket, and yeah. so we had to go through all of that rigmarole without the budget, obviously. And that was a long and arduous process. The biggest hiccup was we had a principal investigator, a um, clinical psychologist and psychiatrist, uh, a professor in the Department of Psychiatry, um, who had committed to doing this for us. It was one of the reasons one of the grants gave us money was because we had him on board. The IRB was only approved because he was on board. Penn was only doing this because he was on board. So everything was basically predicated on him being on board and being behind this. And he, uh, for reasons I don't, I don't quite understand fully to this day, personal reasons, what have you, uh, he reneged on us and dropped out of being our principal investigator. And it was like, one of those holy crap moments. Like, what do we do? We yeah. did all this work. We have all this funding. We're committed $50,000 right now in the bank to run this study, which now our lead investigator for the study is gone. What do we do? Uh, well, it was then about building relationships, being humble, asking for help. And I, at Wharton, there was a class, believe it or not, they had a class called um, Neuroscience. Neuroscience of Marketing. It was taught by Dr. Michael Platt, who's a renowned neuroscientist. He travels the world on speaking tours. He's the director of neuroscience, the director of neuroscience initiative, and Wharton's behavioral lab. And asked him, you know, Dr. Platt, uh, this is the situation we're in. This is the type of research we're doing. We think that there's a lot of promise. And he, like his jaw dropped. He goes like, you're doing this? Yes, like I think this has huge promise. This is this is exactly what my research is about. This is exactly what I love to do. Plus, I have a Wharton student coming to me saying they already have funding and everything. He so he jumped right on it, and we were able to kind of save that whole research process. And he helped usher it along for us, and is now an official advisor to us uh, to this day. Like Michael's a good friend. Wow, it's amazing. But um, I don't quite understand. So what was this research project that you were doing, and, and why was it important? So we, you know, there's a lot of the technology that we 
are utilizing uh, the EEG technology, heart rate technology. This is relatively old technology. Um, I mean, if you think about it, heart rate technology's technically been around since you could, since we knew what a pulse was, and you were just measuring your pulse. Uh, EEG technology is decades old, but the technology's only been used for a certain number of use cases, like EEGs this expensive exorbitant technology that's in hospital systems it takes 40 minutes to set up with all the gels and it's used for like seizure detection or sleep studies where technology has evolved now is that what used to be this cumbersome technology is more mobile and therefore can be used for different use cases but it's never been used to measure emotion or stress in a um, very consistent and precise fashion which is why um, we felt like we had to do research uh, and have, you know, significant numbers behind the claims that we were making. We didn't want to be another consumer wearable device that made these claims of, I can measure how many calories you're burning or whatever. We wanted to be clinically valid and therefore we wanted to do research so that we can correlate these biometric measures, EEG, heart rate, galvanic skin response, even pupil dilation, we can correlate how those change to your emotional states. And that's the impetus behind the research, that's the re and that's what the research ended up showing. It resulted in the development of the algorithms that are the engine behind the data analytics in the platform today. Interesting. So the, the research basically asked acted as y'all's um, proof of concept for what you were trying to build, I guess, and, and market as a product. And it was necessary to, I guess, gain buy-in from the audience or the investors that you were seeking. Um, yeah, it was necessary from, like, multiple... So, yes, you're right. It was... The research was meant primarily as a development tool. Mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't a clinical trial that you would picture, like, a drug going through. It was a validity study to say like yeah we can actually measure emotional states consistently with these data points and then have that be used to develop the algorithms that you know drive the product forward and then having that study behind it uh, has helped with um, customer traction has certainly helped with investor traction and added you know, I think a sense of validity to what we're doing and it's not just a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed business school students saying, I think we can do this, but the data supports it as well. Gotcha, gotcha. And the key point I heard there was that you actually needed the research to be able to build the algorithm that makes your product work in the first place, right? So Yeah, makes the at least the biometric component work. Okay, yeah. okay. So uh, how long were you working on you know, building out or conducting the research before you actually developed a functioning prototype or, or you know, built the algorithm or... So we, from being incorporated, we were incorporated April 2016. From being incorporated to when the product was used by its first paying customer was 18 months. Wow. Um, so that 18 months was all R&D. Uh, and it, so that was first product paying customer was August of 2017, just roughly six months ago. We had prototypes before then, obviously, that were working, that we could iterate off of, that we could drum up more support for, but it wasn't being used by 
you know, clinicians with real life patients or anything like that. Mm -hmm. uh, one of those prototypes was our first, like, I guess, if you want to say, I don't know what the right term is, uh, our first world launch was at the South by Southwest conference down in Texas, you know, the national tech conference yeah, of course. And, uh, they, we had submitted an application for their accelerator awards, uh, and were accepted in, in, uh, the finals for the wearable health and wearables, um, category. And so I had one minute to present on stage and, uh, you know, I wasn't nervous, but we're going against companies that had significant traction, had products that were actually being used by customers. Remember, you know, this is just prototype phase at this point. And I had the bright idea of let's do a live demo on stage. I think I was reading like Steve Jobs' biography at the time by Walter Isaacson and he was always about the live demo. So I was like, yeah, that's a good idea. So I call up my developers and my developers, by the way, are other university interns, by the way. Uh, so, you know, make that for what it is. And we, and they were like, uh, yeah, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to be on stage. There's going to be about 1,200 people there. We're going to also Facebook Live it so that the whole world can see it. <laughs> and we're going to do a live demo. And so that everyone can go on the website and see my stress in real time. And I think like Adam and the developers to this day kind of like hate me for that because <laughs> I put a lot of pressure on the team. But, you know, I get up there. I'm wearing the, one of the wearables, the e, one of the EEG headsets. I'm presenting for a minute, and I say everyone can log on to neuroflowlive.com, and you can see my stress streaming live right now. And the crowd went wild. I think the spike on the visits went like into the hundreds, and uh, luckily it didn't break. It worked. It streamed the stress <laughs> score live right there. We Facebook lived it, and it was a huge success. Uh, you know, I think every so often in the startup world, you have to roll the dice, take a calculated risk. That was one of these examples, and it, it, to this day, it's a fun story to tell. Yeah, so I'm curious, you know, what were your stress levels like? Uh, so if you look at the the chart, I mean, it's just going, it's like uncontrollable. So like huge spike, then huge spike down, huge spike up. And what that tells you is I wasn't able to like regulate my focus or, or emotional level. Like what you like to see is like a more steady either increase or decrease. Um, and it was just all over the place, but, uh, it's... Because you didn't know if this was going to work, and you were like... No idea. Like, no idea. In fact, the day before, we were testing it to see if it was working, and it wasn't working. And so, we had a call, uh, our developer at the time, Matt, and Adam and me had a, a call. Adam and I are in Austin, Texas, and Matt is back in Philadelphia working vigorously on this, and... We're like, it's not working. I'm like, Matt, do you think you can get it working by tomorrow? And Matt's like, I don't know. I'm like, what's the percentage? He goes like, 60-40? I'm like, all right, 60% chance of working. Tomorrow, let's see where we're at. Tomorrow morning, it still wasn't like working. He's up to like 70%. He thinks it's going to work. So I said, all right, let's do a team vote. Are we doing this? Are we going live with it? Because the thing was, we couldn't make a decision right there on the spot because we... We're going to tweet it out, put it on Facebook, put a notice out to the competition that we were going to do a live. Mm -hmm. So it was needed to be a decision for a couple hours beforehand. And we voted. Three yeses. 
zero knows. I think we <laughs> wow. all wanted to roll the dice, and we did it, and uh, and it paid off. That's awesome. Did you guys win the competition? Yeah, so we won this speed pitch competition, uh, which was awesome. We got a lot of good press from that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know if we would have won it if it broke or didn't work. <laughs> Uh, but it definitely helped with the, sh- the show. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. It helped with the, the showmanship of it, for yeah, sure. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so that was a major milestone for y'all and a major victory. Um, and then you just recently you launched the project, or the product, um, I guess to the public, right? To anyone who wants to purchase it about six months ago? So not quite to anyone that wanted to purchase it. Six months ago was the start of our beta phase. So uh, we launched it with some early adopters, the clinicians, doctors that saw this would be valuable in their practice, and they started using it with their, and it it was a paid beta, so they didn't get it for free, but they, uh, you know, they saw the value in it. They also had to, we caveated it that there might be things that break or technical difficulties because we're in beta. And we did that for six months, and then we just ended beta at the end of February because the last six months have been received with overwhelming uh, positive reviews. Like, I mean, each clinician has been on a monthly subscription, so every month they have a chance not to renew, and every month they renew, and they give us public-facing testimonies. I mean, these are PhDs that see patients that are willing to put their name uh, on our site and say like yeah this is valuable this is like a fantastic tool that helps me and my patients um, so that you know over the last six months it's been in that beta phase and now we're at a point where you anyone can log on to the site register an account and yeah. uh, submit payment wow that's that's amazing that must be an immense feeling of, of satisfaction just getting that feedback from your beta customers yeah, in the startup world, you'll learn that feelings of satisfaction uh, are sometimes short-lived. So you're yeah. like, all right, great. And now there's a bunch of other work to be done. So, that I mean, that's what keeps you going, and mm-hmm. you have to pause sometimes and and really appreciate those little moments uh, that are positive because you don't know when they're going to come back again. So, I, you know, I pinch myself every day. I can't believe it's been two years and we are being used by 30 clinics around the world now, so mostly around the country and one in London. We're, these doctors are paying us because the, we are transforming their practices. Yeah. As an example, we returned to Austin. We didn't go to South by this year, but we returned to Austin in February to present at the Psych Congress uh, conference. And... Uh, six other companies presented, or no, five other companies presented. We were the six, and the um, the attendees who were psychologists, psychiatrists, social workers had the opportunity to vote for what their favorite company was. And out of the hundreds of psychologists that voted, uh, we received forty percent of the vote. The next closest person, I think, received like sixteen percent or something like that. So, to receive that kind of validation, that kind of vote from people that are our target audience is really cool. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And you guys have actually been able to secure some additional funding um, from the Intel Now as well, right? So I believe you just closed a seed round this past fall? Yeah, almost about the same time as our beta launch, 
roughly the same time as our beta launch, we closed a $1.25 million seed round. Uh, I recently wrote an op-ed, like an article, um, where I highlighted the fact that half of my investors, we have 11 investors, half of them are veterans, military veterans as well. I don't think that's an accident, I think, because they also saw the need. They saw they were also mission-oriented like, like I was in starting this company. And, you know, they, I'm humbled, very humbled to say that they got behind me in, in the mission as well. So that uh, investment round closed in September. Uh, it was $1.25 million round in addition to the 140000 of grant money we received before that. And, uh, you know, it's been fueling the fire ever since. That's awesome. So you did your beta launch for the past six months. You closed your seed round, and now you guys are, like, officially open to the public. So you guys are, like, in the thick of it. So what are you most excited about in the near term? Or, or you know, what's coming down the pike that you're particularly focused on? Well, our team is growing. We're at nine full-time employees now, if you count interns, contractors, and part-time, we're at 15 employees, which is, uh, you know, the team is growing, and we have psychologists now, uh, neuroscientists on the team. I mean, it's, it's really a spectacular place to come to work. We're excited about educating the market, getting the word out that this is a tool that you can use. It's cost-effective. It's affordable. You can go to our site to, to learn about the pricing options, and, you know, hopefully changing lives in the process for the better. Uh, over the next year, our goal, our main focus is to get this in as many clinicians' hands as possible so that we can positively influence as many patients as possible. Awesome. So I think the last question I'll just ask then is, uh, you know, for other, other students or other people out there who are you know, pursuing their own business or aspire to at least, uh, you know, what, would, what would you say to them in terms of advice and when it comes to you know managing the struggle and 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 the the challenge of trying trying to, to build something. Well, I mean, so first of all, with the struggle, just before you even get into it, resign the fact that it's going to be a struggle. Resign the fact that this is going to be hard. Um, if it was easy, everyone would do it. So if it's a commitment that you're willing to make, just prepare yourself upfront that there are going to be days that are really, really hard. So I think if you prepare yourself that way, when those days come by, you'll be like, okay, I got this. Like, don't worry. There, there, there will be good days that happen in addition to this. Um, other than that, tactically, I would always ask questions. Just obsessively ask questions. You're talking to customers, potential customers, partners, other developers, competitors. Always ask questions. Why do you do this? Uh, there's a principle known as the five levels of why. So, you know, uh, you know, what is your, uh, what's a problem that you deal with? The customer gives you an answer. Then you ask, well, why is that a problem? And then they give you, like, a little bit more insight. Well, okay, why, you know, why did that, you know, point that they made? And it, you'll really start to dilute of what is the real problem you're solving as opposed to the problem that you think you're solving, which will help with product development, go-to-market strategy, uh, and will better define your product as opposed to you just kind of making an assumption, building something and hoping customers come there. So always ask questions, dig down deep with those questions, and, um, and 
you know, I mean, it sounds cliche, but never give up. <laughs> you get a lot of no's. I talked to a lot of investors before I got 11 folks to commit uh, their money to our company. Um, and I could have given up at any time in that process, and I don't think anyone would have faulted us for doing so. But we believed in it. We believed in the product. We knew there was a, a need out there, and, uh, and we didn't give up, and here we are. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. Um, if listeners are interested in learning more about Neuroflow, I encourage you to go to our website, www.vstartu.com, where we have an additional article on them, and you can learn more at neuroflowsolution.com as well. Thank you so much, Chris. Thanks a lot.